Programming Throwdown, episode 113. Full stack web apps using only Python with Meredith Luff. Take it away, Jason. Hey, everybody. This is a super, super exciting episode. I can't tell you how many times I've gone into Google and typed in like Python GUI because um, as most people know, I do a lot of, of machine learning. That's my day job. And I do a lot of it on the side too for fun. And I always want some way to visualize things. I'm always looking for new ways to do that. And so I'm really excited that we have Meredith here, who's the um, you know, uh, founder and CEO of Anvil. And he's going to talk to us about um, you know, how Anvil, how you can use Python kind of all the way through the full stack. So, so thanks. Uh, so uh, glad to have you on the show, Meredith. Thank you very much for having me. Cool. So yeah, there's, there's a lot to unpack here. Why don't you kind of talk about you know, what Anvil is, you know, and then we can dive into a lot of the details. All right. So Anvil is a development environment for building web apps quickly and simply. And it does that by letting you use Python everywhere. So if you jump into the Anvil editor, you'll get a drag and drop UI creator where you can build like component-based UIs. And then if you double click a button, now you're editing the Python code that runs in the web browser when you interact with that UI. And then you can also write some server code and build a database and add all sorts of external integrations, user authentication, that sort of thing. And then, you know, click and publish it in a kind of serverless sort of way. So maybe the best way to think about it is if you think about those old school rapid app dev tools, we had like at the end of the desktop era, it's like Visual Basic and Delphi. It's like that for the web. Oh, I see. So, so the um, if I remember those tools, basically you had this kind of WYSIWYG like editor, and you could kind of drag and drop buttons. You double click on them, and it kind of takes you to some partially auto generated code. Yeah, exactly that. So, uh, what it means is that you can build your user interface without having to get down and dirty into the HTML and CSS instantly. Uh, you can. It's real programming. This is not one of those no-code things because you're actually writing real code in a real programming language, Python, that runs in the browser. Uh, we compile that to JavaScript, and we can talk about how we do that later if you like. And then rather than having to deal with the HTTP and routing and REST endpoints and all that stuff, you can just say, okay, I'm going to define a Python module. It runs on the server, and then I'm going to tag like these functions as something we can call from the browser. So what we've done is we have taken the web stack, which is actually really, really complicated and forbidding, and we've turned that into all one representation. So if you think about an ordinary web application, if you've built these before, you know, if you think about your data, like an ordinary database-backed web application, your data starts out as rows in a table in your database. And then the first thing you do is you take them out and you transform those into objects in your server-side code, whatever language that's in, maybe Python. And then you immediately turn around, turn around and represent those objects, which you know have their own methods and attributes. You turn those into JSON served over HTTP with this like really limited set of verbs like get, post, put, delete. 
Uh, and on the other end of that HTTP request is some JavaScript that immediately transforms that JSON into a JavaScript object with its own set of methods, its own set of attributes. And then you turn around and you represent, re-represent that data as HTML DOM. And then you use CSS to re-represent it as pixels. And that is the day-to-day work of web development, is shoveling your data and your application's state between these different representations. And we thought, it's not difficult to work out that this is way, way, way more complicated than it needs to be. Have you ever looked at one of those? There's this really great chart on GitHub for like, you know, these are the basic technologies you need to know to be a web developer. And like, it's just like pages and pages and pages and pages of stuff. <laughs> and it's all it's all kind of wired together and you need to fit these, you know, 20 different components together. And we thought, well, if it were all just a Python program, if you could just, if getting from the server to the client wasn't a matter of mashing things into JSON, it was a matter of making a function call. If putting something on the screen wasn't a matter of like generating source code in one programming language that templates a different markup language that is then transformed into pixels by a third language and they all kind of work together and you squint and you get something on the screen, if we could replace that by put a button there and then you know make its text be such and such, if we could replace the process of you know standing up a machine on AWS and setting up a web server and setting up the front end and standing up a database with, well, hey, here's this serverless hosting. If we could do all of that, suddenly creating a web application is no more complicated than writing a Python script. And frankly, that's where it should be. There is no, there is no reason that the greatest application delivery platform on earth should have the bar set that high for like you must know these five different programming languages before you can ride this ride you know you must know html and javascript and css and python and sql and react and redux and bootstrap and flask and sql alchemy and uh, you know that's before we've even got to the devops stuff like that that is not necessary complexity a web application where you click something and something happens ought to be as simple as writing the equivalent Python script. And we set out to make that happen. Yeah, it totally makes sense. I think the, the you know, a lot of the open source libraries, and this is true in general, but but especially for web, um, you know, they're, they're built by companies that have gigantic websites. I mean, they have websites that are, you know, the code base is enormous and the throughput, the QPS is enormous. And so, yeah, if you have a gigantic, uh, um, you know, uh, massive organization of people, then it kind of makes sense. You know, we'll have sort of people design a sort of GraphQL server, and that's going to be, you know, whole teams of people working on that. And then there's a whole bunch of other teams of people consuming that, and it's all sort of decentralized, right? But the problem is nothing starts that way, right? Like, Like nobody goes into the first iteration of their company and they're trying to find product market fit and they have three customers and 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 they're 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 like you know stressing about their graphql throughput like it just doesn't work that way and there's not that much visualization for people who are you know wanting to get started quickly i totally agree with you but i i would take that analysis even further even those huge high throughput guys, like the web isn't the architecture they would have chosen. You just mentioned like several different technologies that are actually about 
taking the primitives that the web gives you, which basically they, they were organic. They kind of grew up over the early 2000s. Now we're stuck with them and turning them into something that these hypers, you know, hyperscale people can use. Like things like GraphQL is literally a solution to the problem. Oh, wait, REST is not a good way of representing our server-side APIs. Guess we're going to have to build something else on top. React is HTML DOM is not a good way of representing our UIs. Guess we're going to have to build some build something else on top. Like all of this stuff is patching over the web, patching upon patches upon patches to try and make it a usable development environment. And that is as true when you are these incredibly high scale people building funky GraphQL backends as it is if you're a data scientist who just wants to be able to like select from a drop down and then draw the appropriate graph on the screen. Actually, almost everybody who's using the web is suffering from these problems in some respect. Having said which, of course, you're absolutely right that, you know, these are the core customers we're starting with first, like the the sorts of people who go, well, I just want to, you know, put a button here or and draw a graph on the screen, or I want to prototype my product. And those are the people we can really say, hey, there is in fact a better option. Here's how you can do it, you know, 10 times faster. Yeah, it makes sense. I, I think yeah, you really hit the nail on the head that that uh the whole HTTP you know invention was for just uh you know server-side rendering. You know, it's for just dropping almost like a printing press, right? It's sort of like you we just we just give you this sort of structure and you just drop it onto your screen. And then obviously the web is totally different now. Now things are sort of hydrated and the hydration for a lot of websites is everything. Like there's some websites that if you don't have JavaScript on, you just get a blank screen or something, right? So Yeah. And there's there's nothing wrong with that with that architecture, right? There it's just like your classic thick client architecture. You have this runtime so you can have fast responses and fast interactions on the device you're actually using and then it talks to a server and that server talks to a database like none of that architecture is actually bad Uh, what i would assert is unnecessarily difficult to use is the particular way the web has evolved around that because just like yeah exactly what you said uh, because it's evolved over this document-based substrate it's kind of at every point, it's done like the minimum required to hack this next piece of functionality on. And so you end up with this mess that's really, really difficult to approach. And you know, there's there's no reason that a beginner or a data scientist or someone whose experience is somewhere else, like you know, manufacturing engineer, should have to learn all this amount of stuff just to be able to, you know, produce an interactive screen. Yeah, exactly. I think, you know, this is even true for, and this is going to be a bit of a tangent, but it's even true for desktop. I think this is one of the reasons why, you know, at least for data science, uh, you know, this Jupyter Notebook has been so popular because, you know, it took all the painstaking time and effort to to do that. But then you're kind of limited to whatever supported, you know, by Jupyter. Ideally, you would have, uh, you know, an uh, as Anvil is, you know, a programming environment where, where, which is much more open-ended. Well, funny you should mention that, actually, because, yes, absolutely. Jupyter is a fantastic piece of technology, and it, the way that it's got that this kind of cell-based interactive programming is a really great fit for a lot of data science tasks. But as you say, it, it's fundamentally just a Python script, and so there's limits to what you can do in terms of interactivity. We actually have a library that can connect a Jupyter notebook to an Anvil UI. Uh, so 
because this is a problem again that that keeps recurring because there are a lot of problems for which actually you know just writing a python script is the right answer and then you go oh well true but i would like to connect this to a web ui so in your uh, machine learning work i'm sure you will have done a lot of this right you are in there you've got your nose in a jupyter notebook you are training designing training refining a model and then you go okay like i i've got this thing working i'm at the point where actually i've gone as far as i want to go by interactively typing python into a programming environment now i want someone else to be able to use it i would like to you know be able to put some interactive visualization on it i'd like to stick it up there so you know I've got an image recognizer and I'd like someone else to be able to come along and take a picture with their mobile phone or upload something from their computer. And what we've actually got is something called the uplink, which is a library you can pip install anywhere you're running a Python script. And it makes a connection up to the Anvil servers. And then your Python interpreter, wherever it is, say inside your Jupyter notebook, it's like it's part of that app so you can access the data tables in your Anvil app with exactly the same API as you could if you were running in our serverless environment. You can call functions in that serverless environment. You can even define those callable functions that can be called from the web page. So actually, we have a uh, neat demo. Perhaps we can drop a link in the show notes of taking a Jupyter notebook that does an image recognition task and then going, well, okay, now I want to turn this into a web app, import the library, take the function that takes an image and returns the classification, tag it as, hey, this is a function we want to be callable from the browser. And then just going into the browser, you know, having a file uploader, when a file gets uploaded into that widget, anvil.server.call, classify image, pass the file in and get the return value. It's just a function call. It's just Python. It just works. So yeah, we we, we have something for that. Yeah, yeah. I think that that makes a ton of sense. So I'm trying to think like, I think you did a good job explaining kind of the the sort of traditional web development, right? And just, just to kind of reiterate, actually, I didn't really explain what GraphQL is and, and REST. So let me cover a bit of terminology and then we can dive into, into how Anvil uh, you know, uh, works, right? Yeah, so typically, you know, if you're on a website, your browser's running this engine called JavaScript. You know, programmers can go in and write things like change colors of buttons, you know, add content that wasn't there before, things like that. And the way that that it does that is, you know, by running this JavaScript engine in your browser, but you know, often it needs to go back to the server and get more information, right? Maybe someone sends you a message and and you have some, you know, IM thing on on your uh, and some IM website that needs to be interactive. So, you know, it's constantly going to the server and saying, hey, is there something new that I need to know about? And the way it does that is by basically visiting websites that are just meant to return data. So, you know, if you go to google.com, you're going to get, you know, this rendering. But there are other websites. If you go to them, you're just going to get, you know, a, a batch of data. And most of the time, people are doing JSON as the transport. So you're going to get some actually human readable, I guess. I mean, it's usually like a mess, but you're going to get something in characters that you can see that's going to represent some structured information, right? And so if you were to build a, you know, let's say, I don't know, old school, if you were to build an old school kind of, you know, interactive website, you would have a bunch of, you'd have your main website, you know, mycoolwebsite.com slash, you know, index.html. But then you'd also have, and you'd also have your images and all of that. Each of those would be URLs. 
and the server would would know where to go to get those. And then you'd have all these other URLs that just return data, and and presumably they they have logic behind them. So so they're going to return different data when you call them, depending on the context. There's something else called cookies, which is think of cookies as like a really small database that your computer and the server are sharing for your connection. And so the cookies are a way so that when you go from one page to the next, you're still logged in every time. But this was a huge pain. It's like, I have to make a URL for every piece of data I need. Like, give me the current time. Tell me how many friends I have. Tell me all my friends' names. Well, and crucially, when when you clicked to go from one of those things to the other, your whole page refreshed. You were staring at a little bit of white screen while the next whole page downloaded, then it showed the next whole page to you. And the web was advancing and we wanted to be more interactive. Yeah, oh, that's so true. So, so then we get to the sort of single page apps where you know it's even fetching not only just, just data and HTML, but it's actually kind of fetching new HTML and kind of building as it goes. And then, but, but you know, having all these URLs just gets, it becomes really cluttered. So this GraphQL was this idea that let's just have one URL, but you'll pass in, you know, a specification that says what you need. Kind of like when you, uh, you know, write SQL queries, there's only one SQL engine and, and, and the query just tells the, the engine to do different things. So with GraphQL, there's only one URL that you go to for all your data, but by passing in different almost like different queries, you're going to get back different pieces of information. And so that, that was better, but it still has this challenge that, that uh, Meredith talked about where you know, GraphQL does everything in this thing called JSON. And so if you want to pass an image, for example, in GraphQL, you actually have to convert that image into letters and then send it to the client and then turn it back. Um, and so it just becomes a huge hassle to represent everything in this way, and then just to turn it back into something that you're going to render. Well, and also the the fundamental structure of a web application is that your browser goes to a site and your site serves up the source code for an app that will run in your browser. This is how it mostly works these days. And then the browser is running an application that's built with JavaScript and HTML. And then when that app running in your browser wants to get some kind of data from the server, it will make an HTTP request to the server. And there are various uh, conventions for how we use those, those requests to get data instead of HTML. There's sort of, a, you could have a URL for everything, so which is the, the rest pattern, or you can have something like a GraphQL where you have one URL that you post this complicated query to uh, and it gives you back some complicated response. But all of this is being squeezed over HTTP requests, which is exactly the same thing that your browser is using to fetch the web page in the first place. And HTTP is a great protocol for fetching web pages. It's not necessarily a great protocol for doing what your application actually wants to do, which is that the part of your code that's running in the web browser wants to talk to the part of your code that's running on the server and do something that's, well, do something that's part of your application. And if this were a desktop, old school desktop application, you'd just make a function call uh, and you know, you'd know you be modular and expose a certain API. Oh yes, the, the GUI section calls the backend engine for these things. And these days on the web, 
whether you use something like REST or whether you use something like GraphQL, you're kind of twisting the way your app thinks about the world until it's shaped like the way that HTTP thinks about the world. And that's just an amount of stress that as a programmer, you don't need. And this is why in Anvil, we have, you can still use those. So if you already have an API that's built in REST or GraphQL, you could absolutely use it with the standard HTTP stuff. But the usual way of communicating between the bit of your app that's running in the user's web browser and the bit of the app that's running on the server is just to make a function call. And uh, you can pass arguments to that function call. You can get return values to that function call. Unlike a classic JSON uh, API request, you're not limited to just you know dictionaries and strings and numbers and lists. You can, I mean, in the uh, image recognition example, you can just pass a blob of binary data that was uploaded as a file from the computer. You can just pass that as an argument to the function and Anvil takes care of taking all that, that large lump of binary bytes from your browser to the server and putting it into a form that your server-side code can easily deal with. And this is just one example of how twisting your application's logic into the shape that the web stack expects is just making you do unnecessary work. And we've done the same in the client, where instead of generating HTML, which is you know kind of programming language all of its own, you can say, well, actually, the thing I want to do is I, I, I want to add a, you know, a UI component. And so we have this object-oriented thing where you could just construct an object in Python. You could you know, construct a button object, set its dot button1.txt equals blah, self.add component button, and put a button on the screen. And that's, again, it's not making you twist what your application is doing into the shape of what the web platform is expecting. And so that's that that is, I think, the crucial theme that we're that runs all the way through Anvil's architecture from top to bottom. And doing function calls instead of REST or GraphQL is just one example of that. Yeah, it totally makes sense. I think too, if there's this extra benefit where if you're if you're already using Python for for a task. You know, then if you have some Python program and you want people to see it on the web or you want to write a web visualizer, then without using Anvil, everything you, you want you have to you want to see has to be represented in JavaScript. So now it's like you have to have sort of your Python representation of all this knowledge. Um, and then you have to have this JavaScript representation and you have to constantly be converting from one to the other. And and so um, yeah, that that ends up taking you know a huge amount of time, and it can actually be really difficult. You know, I mean, JavaScript wasn't designed to handle binary data. Um, you know, now they have a whole bunch of cool things for it. So I mean, it's definitely evolved to meet the demand. But but yeah, it, it's it's evolved rather than being designed. Is sort of the point here. Exactly. <laughs> but yes, exactly that. So yeah. Let's dive into the into the magic here. I mean, it, it seems pretty magical that someone, you know, we, we just told people that you can only write JavaScript in the browser. So somebody, you know, so, so someone's writing some Python. And so I think you said that they're, you know, they're annotating some functions and saying, you know, these are server endpoints. And I guess there's maybe like some Python files that are running in the browser, some are running on the server. Like how does how does all of that come together? All right, yeah. So here's what happens. When you open the Anvil editor, You've got, you know, it's a standard IDE type layout. You've got a sort of list down the left of your your modules. And there are two sorts. There are client modules and then there are server modules. 
And whenever you're editing client code, which includes like these these forms, these drag and drop, uh, these uh, sorry, these pieces of uh, user interface that can appear on your page, they're also client side Python modules. They're just they're just Python classes. Actually, it's uh, everything is a Python object. We try not to be not to be magical about this part. But when you write code that runs on the client, Anvil will actually uh, translate that from Python to JavaScript. So when someone visits your application, what they load is actually a Python runtime written in JavaScript. Uh, it's called Sculpt, S-K-U-L-P-T. It's a really cool open source project. We contribute heavily to it. And that is the kind of the translator that allows you to run your, it turns your Python code into JavaScript code that does the same thing. And so when you click on that button, what's actually happening is that the, a, a JavaScript function is running, but that JavaScript function was created from the Python code you wrote. And when you call something that's on the server, so you say, you know, uh, if you do anvil.server.call, that which is our library function for this, that's Anvil's queue to send a message to the server. And it then goes and talks to Anvil servers, which then spin up your server modules, which are those the, the Python modules that you created in the section that's no, this doesn't get sent to the web browser, this only executes in on, on the server, and loads all of those modules. And then any functions that you have annotated with at anvil.server.callable are accessible. And so when the request comes in and says, oh, I want to call the classify image function, uh, then we look up and say, yes, there's a function called classify image. Yes, it's tagged as accessible. So we run that function. And then when that function returns, returns something, uh, we will send a message back to the browser saying this function has completed and here was its return value. And the Python code that's running in the browser gets that as the return value from anvil.server.call. I see. I think I get. So let me let me see if I can reiterate it, and I'll that'll sure figure out if isn't that one of the what's the what do they call that? Is if you can reiterate something, then you understand. I, I don't remember the word for that, but yeah. So so okay. So the idea is actually. So what is getting sent to the client then? Um, is it Python files that then are being executed by this virtual machine, or is it is it being compiled somehow? So it is actually what gets sent to the browser is a Python source code and a Python to JavaScript compiler and runtime. So it actually gets compiled when it's opened in your user's browser. Okay, what's the what's the reason for that? Like, what's the reason for not compiling it server-side? Oh, I see. That is a speed optimization that we will make at some point. Uh, remarkably, actually, when we profile it, that is not the, that's not our current limiting factor in terms of performance. So, you know, one day we will compile it ahead of time and just serve up the compiled JavaScript when your user accesses your app. We just haven't got there yet. Got it. Okay, makes sense. C can people, since it's compiled on the client side, can people write Python interactively then? So people can write Python fairly interactively. We don't have a like an interactive Python console in the Anvil editor yet, but watch this space. Actually, by the time this episode goes out, we might have uh, that that interactive console might be released. Very cool. Okay. Uh, but yes, if you go to sculpt.org, you can actually get a demo of the Sculpt Python JavaScript compiler. And that is like a live Python console running in your web browser. It is very cool. Wow, that's amazing. And and so um, so they actually wrote a Python VM in JavaScript, like from scratch. Believe it or not, they did. And they're not even the only ones. 
there are about five different projects, I think, that have tried to put Python in the browser. And like, there are really good reasons for this, because a whole bunch of people who are used to the ease of using Python have looked at the web and gone, oh my goodness, this needs to be simpler. You know, How can we make yeah. it simpler? Well, you know, I find Python really easy to write. Let's make it so you can run Python in the web browser. And there's a few of these. So there's something called Brython, which is, it kind of replaces JavaScript with Python. So you still write your script tags in your HTML, which is where you'd normally put your JavaScript, but you write them in Python and then the Brython compiler jumps in and compiles them to JavaScript and executes that JavaScript instead. You've got, there is something called Transcript, which is, it compiles something that's mostly Python. It doesn't quite behave exactly like Python, but it compiles it into really clean and fast JavaScript. And that happens ahead of time. So you feed it a bunch of .py files, and it generates a bunch of .js files, and then you load those .js files in your web application just as normal. And that's kind of cool, although... It, it, it doesn't really have a particularly good fidelity to exactly how Python behaves. Like if you're used to, you know, messing around with objects at a low level, then that's not going to work for you. There's also a really cool project called Pyodide, which is uh, out of Mozilla. And that has taken the, rather than writing a new Python VM in JavaScript, it's taken CPython, the standard Python interpreter, and compiled it to WebAssembly which is a kind of like fast compiled virtual machine that runs in your browser. And so if you go to the Pyodide page, you can get something that's kind of like a Jupyter notebook and it's got like all these standard data science libraries, only it's running in your browser. It, it, it's mind bending. What is that one called? Pyodide, P-Y-O-D-I-D-E. Wow, so they, they ran the entire like Python uh, source code through Enscripten or something? The entire Python source code and a bunch of the, the classic libraries. I think you can actually use TensorFlow in your web browser. It's nuts. Wow, amazing. I mean, of course, it takes like a minute to start because it's downloading the entire Python ecosystem when you open the page in the web browser. So it's not going to be that great as an application delivery platform, which is what we're looking for Anvil for. But as a technological achievement, it is spectacular. Yeah, I wonder if that can be cached somehow. I, so this gets starting to get to my limits on what I know about the web, but I think there's like CDNs that cache things or something, right? Is there any way to speed that up? There are ways to speed it up. And you could, if you really worked at it, you could get it down from that many seconds to, to only only a couple of seconds. But it's it's never going to be like an instant snappy response. Got it. So it's... It's, it's great for what it is, which is loading a Python environment in your browser where you're okay with it taking a few seconds to start up, but it's not going to replace JavaScript for what JavaScript is really used for, which is driving the page in your browser and making it interactive. Yeah, totally makes sense. Okay, so, so, there, so, so someone goes to the website, they get the you know default HTML, you know, that whatever hasn't been hydrated yet, so the, mm -hmm. whatever the server is rendered, and they get a bunch of Pi files and they get uh, this virtual machine. So they, they grab the virtual machine, they grab the Pi files, they run the Pi files through the virtual machine, and that, that executes some, some logic. And then part of that logic says things like, call this function on the server. You know, you're on the client, you don't have that function, but, but there's, there's some way where it knows to take the arguments 
uh, I guess, pickle them on, there's like maybe a pickle in the browser. It, it's kind of like that. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So the server runs, the server, you know, unpickles it. Pickle is just, by the way, if people don't know, it's just a serialization library in Python. So the server, you know, deserializes it back to those objects, executes the function on the server, you know, packages up the return value, sends it back to the client. And, and so the client then keeps going. Is there support for like asynchronous calls? There has to be, right? Otherwise it'd be kind of stutters, right? Watch this space. In short, we've actually, we're working on that on an ongoing basis, but actually, so when you make a call that takes a long time, it doesn't freeze the browser, but you do get a loading spinner, which is, you know, just like you get with most other web applications uh, while they're loading some uh, some data from the server. We started with that, this, very, this synchronous programming model where, you know, you call a function, then you get a return value, and then you carry on executing because actually that is what most people want most of the time. Yep, yep. And one of the one of the reasons, one of the things that makes JavaScript so unfriendly to use is that it's not like that. Its default mode is asynchronous, where you say, well, do this task, make this request to a web server, uh, do this other thing, and then call this other function when you're done. And so you end up kind of daisy chaining as you know, pretty simple, what would otherwise be pretty simple logic, like, okay, well, they've clicked the button, call this function, then call that function, then do the other. You end up like daisy chaining them with a series yep, of callbacks. Yep. And then you have syntactic sugar, like async await, if people are familiar with that with JavaScript. But what that is, is actually just syntax for daisy chaining a set of functions. And you still end up, if you want to use something like async await at an advanced level, you end up still needing to know, oh, this is producing a promise object, and this promise object will invoke its callbacks if you do such and such. And that's, again, an example of the problems caused by, well, we, you know, building this application delivery system out of kind of the bits of pieces we had lying around in a web browser. And so we wanted to start with this very straightforward programming model where if you wanted to get something from the server, you could do, you know, x equals call this function and then use x on the next line of code without having to understand everything about async programming in order to get hello world to work. I see it. I think that works because of the VM, right? So I think, with, correct me if I'm wrong, but with JavaScript, I'm pretty sure the machine is only single threaded. So um, actually there are web workers, but we'll put that aside. So, so basically you kind of need everything to be asynchronous because you can only be executing one line of code at a time. And if that line is waiting for the server to come back, then nothing else can get done. But, but here, because you have this VM, I don't think you're limited in this way, right? Absolutely. I actually gave a lightning talk at PyCon in 2017. And if you still have any space in your show notes, I'll send you the link to that, which where I take apart the sculpt compiler and I show exactly how we did it. Um, you're exactly right. It's because we control the compiler, we can turn this really simple synchronous logic into highly asynchronous JavaScript. So there's, it's I can summarize it, but really go watch the talk for, for all the diagrams. But the way the compiler works is it walks over the source code it's been given. And it breaks that up into a tree of syntax, we call it an abstract syntax tree. And that's things like, well, this is a function definition. And this function has you know, these three statements inside them. And one of them is a function call. And the other one's an assignment. And the other one's a return. And there's, you end up with this, this tree of things 
in your language, like assignments, function calls, function definitions, if statements, and so on. And then we there's an, there's another stage, which is the compile stage, which walks over that abstract syntax tree, spitting out uh, the compiled representation. In Sculpt's case, that's spitting out JavaScript. And because we control that compile phase, we can say, actually, every time you're calling a function, call a function. And if that function signals that it's blocked, that it's waiting for something, then suspend all execution and wait until it gets back. And then when you know the result from that function call returns from the server, restore, you know, go back to where we were, you know, nested inside however many function calls and resume execution. Uh, and because we control the compiler, we can like save, you know, what all your local variables, what functions were on the stack and so on and resume it. It's really, really cool. Watch the talk. Cool. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, I think, um, yeah, I think this is a really powerful model. I, you know, it's, it reminds me a little bit of um, like protocol buffers and gRPC where you, you could kind of like, this actually supports cross language too, but, but, but even just focusing on, let's say Python, you know, you would kind of define your, uh, your, you know, server calls in this sort of IDL, and then it would, you know, package all the arguments for you and all of that. The thing about gRPC and protocol buffers is it's just, it's a huge pain to be, uh, you know, auto-generating all of this code all of the time. Um, and so Anvil kind of avoids that really messy step. Also, you have to get protocol buffers, which now with like chocolatey and some of these things, it's not too bad on Windows. You know, on Linux, you can always app get just about anything. But but yeah, just having the protocol buffers runtime and compiler and putting it in your code and all of that, it just adds a huge amount of overhead. Absolutely. I suppose hey, that's that's another example of something, you know, that's Google, a very big company. You know, a demonstration like HTTP requests aren't actually a helpful way of transmitting stuff around inside Google. And, you know, Google turns everything from HTTP into protocol buffers as soon as they can because because the web, yep. you know, the web is, it's like it doesn't fit any size. It's not a great answer. You know, also, <laughs> that's like one size fits none is the web. Yeah, that's uh, right. Like it's not a good fit for those hyperscaler uses and it's really hostile to beginners. Anyway, uh, you can tell that like this is a rant I just keep sort of circling back to. Yeah. So actually one question about this. I mean, what what the, I wouldn't say what the web is good at, but what the, let's say the ecosystem is really, really powerful at and what the, the real sticking value is in the components, right? So, you know, if I need a really nice calendar component, um, you know, I can find just about anything on NPM, right? And so there's going to be, you know, an audience of people who want to do the, the client, you know, the, the design part in something like React. Is there sort of a way to do maybe like the business logic in Anvil? And, and, and does, that, does that then make you susceptible to the problem we talked about earlier, right? Well, so obviously, if you're going, if you want to, Use something lower level and gritty in JavaScript. We, you know, uh, you, you know, you are going to pay the price of doing something in JavaScript, but we don't want to stop you. And actually, this is another big point. Anvil is an abstraction. It takes something complicated, the web, and it gives you an easy way to manipulate it. And the problem with abstractions is that they don't always exactly match the underlying reality. And for example, every abstraction fails like this. Um, Google leaky abstractions. 
every abstraction kind of reaches its edges and it fails. I'm thinking of those, um, but the thing where it's a website, but they tried to make it look like an app, I think it's Cordera or something, but these always look terrible, right? So yeah, I, I'm thinking like at a higher level than that. Like anytime you try to, you take something and you try to make a simpler abstraction for it, there are going to be limits to that abstraction. Anvil's, Anvil's Python APIs are not going to cover every square inch of what the browser can do. It's, I mean, the browser is a mind-bogglingly huge platform. It's just not going to happen. And so rather than lock you in and say, well, tough, you're using Anvil now. You can't use any of that JavaScript goodness. We have escape hatches everywhere. I've actually, I've already talked about one of them in a different context. The uplink is an escape hatch. You know, serverless computing is great. It means you don't have to host anything, but I have like a Jupyter notebook sitting here on my physical computer with a physical graphics card in it. And I want to run my code right here, not somewhere off in your cloud. Well, that's okay. We have an escape hatch that says, that's fine. You can run your code right there on your computer and you can plug it into your app and it's just as good as our serverless code. And in the same way, we have escape hatches to use things in HTML and JavaScript. So if you have a funky calendar component that you really want to use, you know, it's better for your uses than Anvil's built-in calendar widget. What you can do is you can drop down to HTML and JavaScript. You can drive that JavaScript from Python. And then, and here's the cool part, you're not stuck in JavaScript thereafter. What you can do is you can drive that calendar component from, from Python, and then you can define that as a custom component. So the, the Anvil form in which you've included this calendar widget, you can say, use as custom component. And then you can take your app and say, make this app is avail available as a dependency. And now you or anybody else can, in their own Anvil applications, add your app as a dependency and into the toolbox in the drag and drop editor alongside Anvil's built-in buttons and date pickers and so on will be your calendar widget and somebody else can drag and drop it onto the screen. And you can define the properties and the events uh, in your Python class because remember the form you've created is just a Python class. And so you can define properties and events so it behaves like any other Anvil component. And so you've taken this piece of external JavaScript, you've wrapped it up as an easy to use Python class that can then be used slotted right into every other people's Python code and even the drag and drop editor. So uh, yes, we, we really, really, we are religious about making escape hatches for anywhere where our platform doesn't quite eke it out. And actually, uh, there's, a, there's a cool example of this. We're recording this uh, just before Christmas 2020, uh, and we're doing uh, like an ad advent calendar of a web app every day till Christmas. And the one we did a couple of days ago was a 3D Christmas tree. And that 3D Christmas tree is built using 3.js. We don't have native 3D support in Anvil, but that's okay because you can go from anvil.js.window.import3 and you can actually drive the 3 JavaScript API, 3.js JavaScript API from Python because we've got that bridge. And then you can wrap it up and use it as a drag and drop component somewhere else. That makes sense. Does this play well with Webpack? Probably not, right? You, that would be... The thing you would do would be you'd you'd use Webpack to generate your JavaScript, and then you would uh, import that JavaScript. Like you, 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 At that point, you'd be dropping down to JavaScript interfacing with those modules, and then then you would do the bridge to Python. Like You're going to have to write that bridge. If you want to drop down to the low-level technologies like JavaScript, you're going to have to, you know, to get some JavaScript on you at some point. Right, what right. The thing that we're concerned about is that we 
don't force you to drag the rest of your app into JavaScript as well. Yeah, that totally makes sense. But like, does it? I don't know too much about Webpack. I assumed it would kind of mangle all the names and everything. The answer is that uh, you tell Webpack your public APIs, and it so Webpack knows which names not to mangle. So, for example, with 3JS, all its internal stuff is going to be mangled. Sure, it's going to be minified, but um, the actual APIs you're using, like you know, create this mesh, render this here. Those those names are remain unmangled so that they can be used again. This is just you do it just how any other JavaScript programmer would, uh, because that's exactly how any other JavaScript programmer interacts with these libraries. Yeah, totally makes sense. So so yeah, this is awesome. I mean, everyone out there should try this out. Um, there's a lot of people who are um, using Python. I mean, that's the language I recommend people kind of get started with, and it's it's really cool to see that there's a way to. You know, Patrick and I always tell people. Like use well, actually, this this fits in perfectly with our advice, which before was pretty schizophrenic, which was you know learn Python and build a website. That's what we would <laughs> tell people. It's 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 easy to build a website. You don't have to write an installer, uh, but you should learn Python. And don't tell us how you're going to do those things at the same time. And this this episode actually completes our advice for once after what eleven years or something. Well, I mean, the thing is, you're not the only people giving that advice because, like, when you're facing someone who's just starting to program, use Python is absolutely the right advice. You do not want, like, the first thing they do to be exposed to unshielded, like, JavaScript and HTML and DOM. They'll run away screaming. But yes, exactly. That's where everyone starts. And a web app is where everyone wants to finish. And there's, like, this, you know, there's the underpants gnomes, like, step one, learn Python. Step two, question mark, question mark, question mark. Step three, build a web app. And, you know, Bridging that is explicitly what we're about. So tangentially related to this, because what this is really about is making building web applications more accessible. And accessible has two meanings here, really. Because, of course, like you, if you have something that is difficult and complicated, well, the thing you want to do is to uh, make it easy enough for novices to pick up. And... Absolutely. You know, if, if I gone out, went on, out onto the street and asked three people, what does, you know, what would accessibility mean? That's probably what they'd say. But that's only half of it. Uh, because if you just try to make something easy, what you make is like it's a children's playpen. You make something that is kind of a toy. And that does your users a disservice for two reasons. I mean, one, it's that the, the people who are just starting like they are just starting they're not finished yet and they need room to grow their powers and if they're stuck in the, you know in the kiddie section then they can't grow and that is doing them a massive disservice but it also does a disservice to the rest of the world because you know just because i can write five different programming languages and five different frameworks to build a web app doesn't mean i want to and it doesn't mean that anybody else in my company wants to wait for me to do it either and so to be properly accessible, you have to be simple enough for novices and powerful enough for seasoned professionals, because that's how you give the novices space to grow, and that's how you actually solve problems for the professionals rather than only solving problems for beginners, because professionals have problems too. Yeah, that totally makes sense. Yeah. Um, so one kind of question is a little bit different. Like, what inspired you? You you give us a little bit of background on yourself and what it, you, this is an enormous undertaking, and um, what inspired you to say you know we're going to do this? I mean, there's probably 
I mean, you, you could tell me, but there's, there's gotta be at least, I know several, you know, people years worth of effort here. And, uh, what inspired you to really, you know, buckle down and build this? So my personal background is I started programming with QBasic back in the day. And, you know, I came up using these tools like Visual Basic as I was learning. And it was great because it meant that I could I could build real applications that looked like everything else, you know, on your system, whether that was in DOS, it looked like any other DOS program, or whether it was on Windows, you know, it had Windows, it, it had Windows and buttons and menus and so on. And, you know, that is what got me into programming. And uh, I have a old university friend called Ian, and he came up very much the same way. And we ended up, I, I took a detour via biology because I, I already knew I loved computers enough that, you know, they would always be somewhere in my life so I could do go do something else that was fun, fun at university. But I eventually came home uh, and did a PhD focusing on building usable programming systems. And uh, Ian was actually in the research group next door, uh, also working on human-computer interaction. And he has exactly the same experience. He also came up, you know, building things in Visual Basic, tinkering stuff together with soldering irons. He's much better with his hands than I am. And if you have two people doing uh, with that sort of professional expertise, and well, the, the, it's not about the professional expertise. It's people with that experience, people who knew how simple it was and get them looking at the web there's going to be a lot of ranting about who, like, how this really unusable programming system possibly came to be. And, you know, having PhDs in it just means that we have the, just means that we have, like, the fancy vocabulary in which to phrase those rants. But, like, we would have given those rants. <laughs> and at a certain point, we just said, well, like, we complain about this so much. You know, somebody should just build something like Visual Basic or Delphi for the web. It would solve so many problems. And like I, I still have sort of trapped in amber the, the Google Hangouts message I sent to Ian like one, you know, one afternoon saying, this is a thing that, that really should happen. Just got back, yes, in all capitals. And so like <laughs> amazing. That's how it started. It was like once we knew it was a thing that we could do, we couldn't not do it. Yeah, that makes sense. So so you um you were at some point a software engineer and 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 you were you know, you saw firsthand how painful this was. And uh how did you sort of make that leap to? So actually, well, let me step back. Are you doing Envil full time? Oh yeah, you know, this is like it started as a project with a friend. Like it's now, you know, a startup with nine people and uh, growing nicely. Thank you very much, and profitable and all that fun. Yeah, and, and so how did you take that leap? I mean, it's, it's 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 such a leap of faith, right? To say I'm going to I'm going to quit my day job and we're going to build Anvil. And you know, and obviously in hindsight, you know, it's 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 going amazing. But but how did you kind of muster up the courage to to go do that? So I do think one of our greatest privileges being in this industry is that there was less courage than it would have required for many other people. Like I have friends who are professional actors. Like that was huge courage. They're working without a net. Like Fundamentally, if it turns out, if it has turned out that nobody would have been interested in Anvil, you know, I could have come, come and knocked on the door of a bunch of employers and, you know, got a got a job fairly soon, and you know, all that would have been would be a, a bit of missed earnings. I I do think that the I'm not sure courage quite 
covers it, or maybe it's risk doesn't cover it. As it was, I was I was contracting at the time. Uh, Ian was working as a postdoc at the computer laboratory here in Cambridge, and uh, so we we already like we would meet up and work on projects in the evenings and weekends and so on. And so Anvil just became our you know, project at Ian's dinner table. And as we built more and more of it, we got more and more excited about yes, this could be a real thing. And so eventually, we started. You know, we we went down to like four and then three days a week because you know because we could work part time because you know we were young fresh out of phds not a lot of living expenses um mm-hmm. and then we eventually just thought well this is probably good enough uh, to see what the world thinks and we put it up on reddit and reddit just sort of bit our hand off and we went ah okay right Pe- people really are interested in this thing we weren't imagining it okay well time to jump in and so we we cranked ourselves up to full time and we were just i think we were we were lucky because we worked in this industry that we had the savings we had the ability to go to part time work and build up the business until it could support us yeah that totally makes sense yeah i think that's great yeah the, the part about reddit too really resonates i think one thing a lot of people um you know, should be more encouraged to to show things off i think a lot of people are afraid um, I remember when I was in university, I had some some side projects that were were terrible. <laughs> and so I think I think if you Google my name, there's there's some I don't remember if it's Reddit or some forum, but there's some forum post where I introduced some game engine that was in hindsight absolutely terrible, and it got completely torn up. But it was I learned so much, you know, from that experience. And to this day, I mean, we posted about Eternal Terminal on on Hacker News and all of that. And I think. You know, being in in those communities is actually something we didn't mention earlier. But that's another thing that I think beginners really should do is is get kind of uh, you know get yourself enrolled in some of these some of these uh, those oh, social hey. groups. Eternal Terminal is you. That's awesome. I didn't realize that. Awesome. Really pleased <laughs> to meet you. It's a really yeah. cool technology. Cool. Yeah, I, I'm thinking about replacing SSH entirely, which would you know it would be adding a lot more to it. But uh, you know, a lot of people. The biggest complaint is that you have to open another TCP port. So yeah, we'll see where it goes. Awesome. But anyway, yes, and I saw it because you put it out there. And yes, I mean, we honestly we should have put Anvil out there like a year sooner, probably. <laughs> yeah, yeah, makes sense. Yeah, I think um, um, you know, it's 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 hard to do because uh, you feel like oh, if I if I make a bad first impression, but. You know, no one ever says uh, I, I I put it out too early and I gave up on it. Um, you, you always hear hear things in the other direction. Yeah, I, I mean, I do think anyone anyone who wants not to believe that will will believe that their case is special. I think Anvil is a little bit special in because it's a development tool, and a development tool is kind of useful for everything or useful for nothing. And so there was a minimum level that we had to get it to in all of these areas. I mean, Anvil is a massive platform. I mean, I, we've, we haven't touched on a lot of the stuff underneath the, sur- underneath the surface, but like it's, it's a serverless app hosting environment. It's a drag and drop designer. It's a web-based UI toolkit in Python. It's a Python to JavaScript compiler. It's like off-the-shelf user authentication. It's got integration into you know Google APIs, Facebook, Microsoft, what have you, Stripe. Uh, you know, it's a task scheduler because, of course, you've got to be able to run t- scheduled tasks in your apps. It's got the uplink. It's got, I mean, I'm sure I'm missing stuff out. 
And we had this vision for this is like, this is the end state we wanted to be. This is what an ideal platform would look like. It would have all this power and be this simple. And we sort of, we kept measuring the difference between what we had and what it could be or would be. And instead, we should have been measuring the difference between what we had and what people were struggling with already, because that would have got it out the door a lot faster. That is, you know, such a good point, actually. The 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 whole, um, you know, logging and, and capturing what people want. I, I feel like we, we desperately need to do a show on this. You know, you build something, all of us, when we build things, we build it ultimately for other people. Because there's if if a thousand people are going to use your program, nine hundred and ninety nine of them aren't you right and so so you're building an app for other people and you're making a lot of assumptions about what they want right so for example, for eternal terminal in the first versions it it had a way of it basically slowed down the delivery of content so that you could hit control c so if you goofed up and you know tried to cat a binary file or something, you could still punch out. But then it turns out people just didn't want that. And there was just a bunch of issues. A whole bunch of people were upset about it or, or they were complaining about it. And so I took it out and people were much happier. But it's, it was just a lot of kind of trial and error and, and listening to issues and feedback. And there really wasn't you know, any analytics. I mean, there's nothing that reports back from Eternal Terminal. And, and I think that that is such a missed opportunity um, because there's just so many things that we have to learn the hard way. That is a huge advantage of running a, a hosted service, and that's, I mean, one of one of the many advantages. It also means you like you can upgrade, you can ship upgrades, and you can ship rollbacks very quickly. I, I should mention, by the way, that, that there are disadvantages to being a hosted service as well. And if you think, oh yes, you know, this would be uh, this would be great, but I couldn't possibly rely on someone else's hosted services for that. Like we've got you covered. Don't worry. The answer is pip install Anvil App Server. All of the Anvil runtime stuff is actually open source, so you can just you can self host an app. You can, in fact, you can build an app in a te- text editor and self-host it, and never touch anything owned by us at all, uh, if you really want to. But otherwise, you can build it in Anvil, and then you can just get clone it out of our repository onto your disk, and then host it locally. But yeah, so uh, local stuff is important, and I guess Eternal Terminal is one of those things that kind of that wants to be a local application, and something like Anvil kind of wants to be a hosted application because, again, it's it's all about the escape hatches. You want to have you want to have the escape hatch so that someone who says, oh, I'm running this on a Raspberry Pi, it, you know, I work at a TV station. Uh, we need to be able to carry on broadcasting if the uh, if the internet goes down. This has to be running on a computer in the building. True story. That's fine. You can do that. But the 95% use case is I don't want to worry about servers. I don't want to worry about hosting. I just want to click a button and have it there. And so... Anvil kind of naturally gravitates to being a hosted service if you want to solve the problems that we're solving. Whereas something like Eternal Terminal gravitates to being something that's running on your own computer. And I think people's perceptions about telemetry change drastically because it's impossible to interact with a hosted service without creating logs. And I mean, we... Ah, yeah, that makes sense. We are very privacy conscious with logs. Uh, Check out our privacy policy. We, We really do not... We really put effort into... If you looked over our shoulder and you saw everything that we could see, you would not feel violated. That's the thing that's really important to us. Yep. But the the bar for people's expectations for a downloaded program is is somewhat different, I think. Yeah, it totally makes sense. Yeah, I mean, in any, in any case, you need to 
be very diligent about anonymization and and you're really trying to look for macro trends like you know everyone who creates you know the button widget in anvil do they create it once and then never again right that would be a sign that either there's something wrong with it or people just were discontent with it and uh you're creating that 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 basic telemetry and 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 you know in a way that preserves people's privacy i mean that 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 could easily be a whole show i mean there's there's a lot of content there uh, yeah we we started so part of the the starting anvil story i kind of elided is that um when we when it was just the two of us and we were getting started we actually we were able to work out of an office uh, in the computer lab which is uh, cambridge's computer science department uh, and one of the real benefits of that is being able to just walk down the corridor and you know ask people in the security research group uh, about problems like this and that's something that was really valuable to us yeah yeah that's awesome i think that was good i think the yeah basically the the nutshell is uh and I don't know if there's good sort of standardized libraries for this. I mean, I know there's there's like segment and some of these things for for collecting analytics on the web, but I, I don't know if there's sort of something generic there. But uh, but yeah, basically, uh, you know, you want to try and get some kind of feedback to to improve improve your app and pay attention to all the issues and all of that. I guess that's the sort of mantra. Yeah, I think that's fair to say. Hey, everybody, we have a new sponsor, and that is ConfigCat. Uh, and I'm going to tell you a little bit about uh, what ConfigCat is. It is a feature flag service. You can easily use flags in your code with ConfigCat libraries for Python, nine other platforms, toggle your feature flags visually on the visual dashboard, hide or expose features in your application without redeploying your code, set targeting rules to allow your, you to control who has access to those new features. ConfigCat allows you to get the features out faster, test in production, and do easy rollbacks. With ConfigCat's simple API and clear documentation, you'll have initial proof of concept up and running in just minutes. Train new team members in minutes easily so you don't have to pay extra for growing teams. With a simple UI, the whole team can use it effectively. Whether you're an individual or a team, you can try it out with the forever free plan. Uh, release your features faster and with less risk with ConfigCat. Check them out today at configcat.com. Cool. Yeah. I, for people who don't know what feature flags are, it's, you know, imagine you have something out in production and you want to change some kind of behavior. So you might say, you know, now use this other database, but then you do that and then it's it broken and now you've broken it for everybody. And that's, that's kind of a nightmare. So, so what you want to do instead is you want to try something out on like a few people and then slowly kind of add more and more and more people. And one way to do that is to have a feature flag, have a flag that says, if, you know, this is part of my test group of people, then switch to the new database. Otherwise, use the old database. And, and slowly, like that if becomes true for more and more people. And so ConfigCAS is a service that, that kind of handles a lot of that for you. So you know, they can, like, handle deciding, like, who gets the feature and who doesn't. And then you can go in their UI and change all of that and slowly, slowly get it to 100%. And, and they take a lot of that burden off you. So check them out. They're great. Yeah. So so let's dive into the company. So is is the company called Anvil? Oh, uh, the, the company the company is called the Tuesday Project Limited because uh, Ian and I used to meet okay. for project days on Tuesday. And we had agreed many, many, many years ago that if a startup ever came out of this, it had to be called the Tuesday Project. And so it is. <laughs> the Tuesday Project. Very cool. So does the Tuesday Project have uh, you know like internships? You know, there's a lot of folks listening who are 
uh, you know, in the process of trying to find a place to intern at or find a place to work at. So the wonderful thing about living on a startup's timeline is that if you're recording a an episode that's going to air in three months' time, I genuinely don't know exactly what the state of our hiring is going to be at that point. But I would strongly encourage anybody who's interested to, I mean, sign up. Anvil is free to use. It's a premium. You know, if you sign up for a free account, then you get like a banner on the top of your apps and and basically that's it. If you sign up for an account and if you're on our mailing list, we will mail you when we are hiring. So uh, that's like that, that. That's the that that is the eternally true thing that we are expanding. We are growing nicely and very happy about it. So if you are uh, based in the UK and you are interested in fixing web development and being part of the team that does that, then uh, do uh, hop along and sign up for an account. Uh, you can also go to anvil.work slash jobs. Uh, and if we are if we have a hiring window open at that at that point, then you'll see that. Um, otherwise, sign up for an account, we'll let you know. Yeah, and so what's uh, a day in the life of... Actually, how many people work uh, on Anvil? You said it's about nine people. This is, again, one of those, one of those uh, pieces of information that's likely to go uh, out of date uh, very quickly. Uh, but yes, there's currently nine of us. We're entirely bootstrapped, so we have not at this stage taken uh, any venture investment. We are funded entirely by happy customers, uh, which is a really great place to be um, from the perspective of one's blood pressure level heading into a global pandemic, for example. Oh my goodness, yeah. Turned out to be fine, actually. It turns out that a massive change of working uh, causes a whole bunch of people to need to build new processes really, really quickly. Yeah, actually, you know, if uh, well, so yeah, maybe a bit of a, a bit of a tangent but what is your take on um you know venture capital specifically around things like developer tools I, I feel like in that area i mean i'll give you my take up front and then we could we could talk about it i feel like the the market is not really known well and so and so it's not clear you know some of the venture capitalists want you know they have really really big ambitions and so, you know, for developer tools that might going to venture capitalists might be a mistake because the market might just not be that big, and then you'll end up in kind of a bad spot. Yeah, I don't think insufficient market sizes are a problem. Uh, there are just shy, I think, of ten million Python developers out there, and many, if not most, of the web. Re- sorry, many, if not most, of the rest also uh, do web development. So I think. I think we're fairly comfortable that the problem we're solving is is, is sufficiently huge. I think it, it changes your distribution of outcomes. Taking investment can also really help you if you are not as lucky as Ian and I were, and uh, you're not able to sort of slow burn work on this part time until it's something that's ready to show to the world and start selling. Um, I, I'm I'm not religious about this. I don't think that um, venture capital is a bad thing even for development tools, although I think the VC ecosystem writ large has swung and missed a few times on models for developer tools, and some of them have been more successful than others. I would say, you know, MongoDB was a win, Docker was a miss, despite the fact that Docker has completely transformed its target market. Uh, it's, yeah, perils of open source business models there. Yeah, I think I think Kubernetes kind of took all the actual like economic value. Yeah, I mean, well, this is, okay, uh, tangent to the tangent. <laughs> yeah, it's true. Okay, this is a reason that that developer tools are difficult. If you're starting a company and you are 
thinking about releasing your company's main product as open source. And developers basically demand that at some level for a lot of the tools that they will take seriously. You have to answer the question of what do I do now I've given my whole product away for free? Uh, somebody uh, once, who I'm blanking on his name, uh, once said to me that if you open source, you no longer have a product. You have two products. You have one you sell and one you give away and make sure the one that you're selling is actually worth something. This is this has actually worked out really well for us because we do have the two products. We have the Anvil runtime for running your applications and we have the editor for building them. And so we have open sourced the runtime and we still, you know, we, we still have something that is worth people paying for premium features on. But I do think that from the last few years, we can take the lesson that if you are infrastructure that will be built on top of, you'd better have a really good story for why the fate of Docker is not going to apply to you. Yeah, that's really well said. Rewinding, where were we before the tangents to the tangent? Oh, oh yeah. So, so okay, so we were talking a little bit about VCs. Um, and then I think the question I was going to lead into is, is what what is it like to work on Anvil, like, like, you know, I mean, I mean, okay, we can talk uh, pre-COVID, right? So, so, you know, how is it different than, you know, people have this vision, especially folks in, in maybe university, have this vision, you know, you come into the office, there's just a bunch of cubicles, everyone just sits down, no one talks to each other, you just write code, you all go home. It's sort of like the office space kind of model, right? And so, what, yeah, one of the things we try to do is ask people, what is unique uh, about the sort of work environment and, and sort of the, the workplace that you've set up and, and just, you know, make, make it a little human, you know, for folks out there. To be clear, we are in the middle of a pandemic. We are working entirely from home. I desperately miss the office because I really like the people I work with and I like uh, being there to hang out and have lunch with them and have interesting conversations. I think something that is, I suppose, two things that make working at, uh, that make this company to be a particularly fun one in terms of like how much I enjoy being around the people is that because we make tools for developers, everybody in the company writes code. Uh, whether they are showing people how to use Anvil or working on the core product or both, uh, everybody is writing code. And so everybody, we sort of speak the same language and we all understand like at a sort of deep visceral level, the problems we're solving and what is and isn't a good solution. And so it's really great fun that you know we we pull everybody from the you know CEO to the to the newest developer advocates into the design meetings, and that's really that 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 part is really fun. Yeah, I think it's great that you all can speak the same language because at my job, half of us are speaking JavaScript, half are speaking C plus <laughs> plus. It's just it's just the best. Well, and we all speak Python. <laughs> of course, I mean, a, a bunch of our team speak JavaScript because, you know, we we build the Anvil editor and the runtime, which means that we spend an awful lot of time, honestly, pounding our head against the desk and saying, I am, you know, when some corner of JavaScript or browsers or HTTP bites us, we bash our heads against the desk and say, I am doing this so that hundreds or thousands of other people won't have to for whatever little feature we're working on. So yeah, that, that that part's really great and that kind of alignment. I think also kind of because Python has a, both Python, the language and the problem domain we're looking at and the sorts of 
people who are likely to know a little bit of Python but not much else, and they are firmly within our, our sort of targets, means that we get to interact with a really interesting variety of people. So talked about you know people who arrived in a steaming hurry having to build something. The uh, microbiological diagnostic unit, uh, unit at, in Melbourne in Australia suddenly, sometime around the tw- uh, beginning of 2020, acquired a really, really, really urgent need for uh, a system they can just, you know, toss a gene sequences of viruses into and have it build <laughs> a phylogenetic tree of like, okay, that sequence matches something that came from the other end of Australia. Check, you know, where did that person come in? Check that flight, trace it to other people, you know, uh, are, are our infection control measures in school working? Like all of this really, really cool stuff. And I got to end up, t- I got to talk to this bioinformaticist uh, at the NDU about like, how are people doing tracing in the, in the pandemic? And like, you know, what is, what does he use Python for? What, you know, what tools is he building? You know, how does their, how has their work been changed by the fact that it's all just sequence it and now it's all data science? You know, it's not so much bench biology. It's toss it all into the sequencer and throw Python at it is now how they, how that lab works. And like, that's one example of thousands where people are doing interesting things that aren't, you know, that they're a little bit off the beaten track, because if you build something that enables the people who are, for whom building a web app wasn't accessible, if you make it accessible, just that a bit more accessible, you will suddenly pull in all these people who are doing all sorts of non-traditional things, and you will meet them, and you will have a great time doing so. You also get to pull in, like, non-traditional Stuff. So, you know, we have everybody from uh, like uh, one of our uh, developers who's sadly just gone on on, on maternity leave. I mean, you know, great news for her. Uh, sad for uh, sad for us. Uh, she's great. Uh, mm-hmm. Just, you know, switched careers from uh, financial services uh, because she reckoned that programming was more fun. And, you know, we hired her, I think, like six, nine months out of a boot camp. And, you know, she hadn't really written Python before she got to us. And that's actually great. We love hiring people like that because those people are our customers, right? She really deeply understands what it's like to be starting out on Python and web development because that was her very, very recently. And now she gets to be at the leading edge of, like, you know, building the developer tool that solves that problem for everybody else. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, I think that would be so fascinating to meet the people who are, uh, you know, because it's like um, the people who already have a, a website, they have that inertia, right? They would have to, you know, even using the things we talked about earlier, they still would have to deconstruct to some degree their website. But it's the people who are just starting who are looking at this whole ecosystem and saying, okay, you know, where should my first line of code go? And so, you know, a place like Anvil gets a lot of those people. And I think that could be so exciting to see, you know, the next generation of web developers, right? I think that's oh, awesome. Absolutely. It's, you said, like, the number of people who type Python Python GUI into Google and then keep typing, like, variations on that because they've learned some Python. Everything, you know, everything so far has been really straightforward. It, you know, this next step must there must be a way that's this straightforward for the next step, right? You know, it can't possibly be this difficult. <laughs> yeah. 
What about for desktop? Do you do you have an integration with Electron or something like that? Uh, we don't. It's something that people have periodically talked about. Um, it hasn't it hasn't risen to the top of our list. It's not like the thing that um, that most affects people. Uh, going back to these people, it's awesome to meet. I will take the opportunity I'd resisted so far to plug our podcast because what we do is oh go for it. About once a month, we get on a phone call with somebody who does something really cool and talk to them about what they do. So we've had like interviews with like TV broadcast engineers because, you know, it turns out they were they shifting shifting to broadcasting over the internet. They needed to completely rebuild the system that you know when you when your like when your satellite box isn't working and you call up the uh the, the customer service center and they go sort of tap 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 tap. Ah yes, sir. It, it appears that that thing it can't reach the Wi-Fi, so, you know, let's you know move it to a better place with better signal. That whole system that collects and presents those diagnostics needed to be rebuilt because they were shifting to internet streaming and of you know the, the the great anvil story in this is that a tv broadcast engineer who's you know not a web developer was able to pick up and plug a web front end into the back end systems that run their tv broadcasts uh, really easily without having to you know learn five different programming languages but the really fun story for us is that I then got to interview with him, interview him, and I got to learn about how TV broadcasting works, which is something like I hadn't encountered in a million years. Yeah, the, the real programmers, right? The ones who are setting up the program for tomorrow's show. Yeah, absolutely. So yes, it is really, really, really great meeting this huge variety of people who do all sorts of stuff. It's really fun. Yeah, this is awesome. So, so the how are ways that people can, you know, kind of get a hold of you and get a hold of, uh, um, or, or learn more about Anvil? Right. Well, the first thing to do is to go to anvil.works and hit the build link because it's free to use. We have a bunch of tutorials. Try it out and see what we mean about how our development ought to be. So that's that's the first one. If you want to find me, um, I am Meredith on Twitter. That's M-E-R-E-D-Y-D-D. You probably want to click the link in the show notes for that one. Um, <laughs> what what nationality is that? Is this is that Irish? Welsh. Oh, Welsh. Okay, got it. Welsh is one of those languages. It's like Polish. It's 100% completely phonetic, but you show the letters on the page to an English person and they make the most amazing face. <laughs> yeah. Cool. I think um, is is Welsh is is uh, so this is going to show my total ignorance of of geography here. But but Welsh is it's southwest, right, of of the whole UK. Yes, uh, Wales is uh, on the yeah southwestern end of the UK. Uh, most people who live there uh, speak English, but a lot of them are also bilingual in Welsh, and that includes my family. Oh, very cool. I feel like I've slightly earned the right to make everyone suffer through spelling my name. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I, I think, yeah, we'll definitely put put links to the show notes and everything. And so, you know, definitely check out, you know, anvil.works. Oh, one thing we didn't cover that I want to circle back to really quick is, you know, especially for students, you know, what is free and then what costs money? Right. Okay. So what is free is pretty much everything I've talked about. So the design, the hosting, the serverless Python, the uplink, uh, all of that stuff is free. If you're using a free account, there are two limitations. One is that you'll get a banner on the top of your app saying, you know, made with Anvil. Uh, and the other is that uh, we uh, there are going to be some limits to the libraries you can import uh, in the serverless environment in your server modules. Uh, that, and this is just because we're hosting code for um, from, you know, random strangers from the internet on our servers. Yeah, so, so you're saying I can't train my neural network 
I can't train my neural network using your serverless functions and, and you have you pay for well, it. Correct. You can't train your neural network on our servers. But if you want to bring your <laughs> yeah. notebook up and connect it to the uplink and train your neural network there, you can absolutely do that on the free plan. Oh, interesting. So yeah, the idea is you can do everything. And of course, you can use the open source app server, you know, wherever you are, whatever you're doing. Um, so there are you can use everything in Anvil for free. What we do offer is paid plans so that that make uh, life easier for you, that you know, take some of the sting out of the hosting. You know, if you want to run a neural network uh, in the in the cloud without having to worry about, oh, this computer with a Jupyter notebook must stay up at all times, then you know, you're welcome to take out a plan with us, that kind of thing. You know, you work on a team, you want to collaborate with your colleagues, that kind of thing. We offer that. The goal is that anyone can anyone can use it. It's, you know, it's a real development tool. Uh, rock up and give it a try. Something else I should mention, by the way, for all the uh, educators listening, if you're using Anvil to teach a school or university course, all of the features are completely free. Just drop us a line at uh, education at anvil.works. Oh, very cool. Good to know. Yeah, we'll have a lot of that. And we'll have students asking their teachers to do that. Absolutely. Well, uh, bring it on. Cool. So what is your uh, the name of your podcast? Oh, uh, Stories from the Workshop. Uh, you can get it at anvil.works slash podcast. Cool. Stories. Okay. So we'll have all of this in the show notes. We'll have uh, Meredith's uh, uh, Twitter. We'll have AnvilWorks links. So, so check out the show notes. Uh, if you're in your car or something, uh, wait till you get home and then check out the show notes. <laughs> but uh, uh, we'll have links to everything over there. And there's a ton of information. Uh, you know, for for folks out there, if you build anything with Anvil, even if it's your first Hello World, you know, drop us a line, send us an email, you know, programming throwdown at Gmail, um, you know, send Reddit an email, and and you know, uh, come back to us. Yeah, we love to see that. It is it is so so satisfying to see hear stories from people and to see the things people have built. It's it's uh, it really fills our bucket. So oh so yeah, definitely don't hesitate to reach out. And again, uh. If you are interested in uh, jobs, careers, internship stuff, again, sign up and just stay on our newsletter and we will let you know if, as and when uh, we are next hiring. Yeah. And, and in the meantime, you know, go to check out these things like, uh, was it Sculptor? Is that right? The the Python thing? Sculpt. Yeah. Yeah. Check out this technology. If you want a survey of uh, Python in the browser stuff, a colleague of mine actually wrote, gave a talk at PyCon UK Last year, it was, you know, last year that conferences were a thing. So 2019, as a web page write-up, we can also put in the show notes that's like comparing Sculpt and Bryphon and Transcript and PyAdide and PyPyJS and like why we chose what uh, the choice, made the choices we did for uh, Anvil. So you can go check that out as well. And please Very do cool. the Sculpt project. Uh, we always love getting more contributors. Um, so yes, uh, check us out, submit a PR. Yeah, I mean, there's there's no better signal than than I mean, the ideal interview is where someone just sits with your team for a week. That that's my take on it. And so and so, there's no better proxy for that than than someone who who contributes. Um, you know, I know personally, we've hired people who have contributed to our open source projects. So so I have firsthand experience with that. And uh, yeah, it's super important. So uh, I said that uh, Bridget, one of our developers, uh, just went on maternity leave. Uh, and uh, her her maternity leave cover, who has now been made pro- permanent because he's so good, um, is somebody who was on our forums contributing to stuff, maintaining open source Anvil components for other people to use. And so by the time it got to the point of hiring, we just sort of took a look at him and went, yeah, 
yes, yes, we definitely want to hire him. We have worked with him. We know exactly what he can do. Sold. So that's a really good routine. And yes, he was also contributing to Sculpt as well by the end of it. He's a yeah, really good chap. Wow, very cool. Awesome. Hey, uh, Meredith, this is amazing. I really, I'm super motivated to try this out. I actually have a have a project that I'm, I can try it out with even today. And, and Promise me you'll send an email with the link. I really want to see it. I will actually. Yeah, I, I, uh, I'll definitely do that. I hope to share everyone uh, you know, the next uh, uh, sort of thing that I'm trying to cook up. And I think, I think Anvil would be perfect for it. So thank you so much. You know, uh, I think that this taught me a lot. I think it taught the audience uh, a lot about, about the web and about this new way of of, of programming for the web. So this is, this is super exciting. I really appreciate you coming on. Well, I, I had a great time chatting to you. So thank you very much. Cool. Thanks a lot. And everyone out there, um, you know, uh, thanks a lot for all of your support on, on Patreon and uh, by supporting us through our Audible subscriptions. Um, and everyone uh, stay safe out there. I think by the time this uh, makes it to the air, maybe we'll have like the vaccine in many people's hands. I really don't know. It's all speculation at this it's point. Already- started dosing here in the uk and i cannot wait to get back in oh wow and see yeah. and hug people and get back in the office and you know stuff yeah exactly yeah well so everyone stay safe out there and uh, we'll catch you next episode thanks very much Music by Eric Barnmeller. Programming Throwdown is distributed under a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 2.0 license. You're free to share, copy, distribute, transmit the work, to remix and adapt the work, but you must provide an attribution to uh, Patrick and I and share alike in kind. <laughs>